This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, I've been speaking with three members of Aruka Network, all of whom in recent years have helped to create the fourth edition of a book called Setting Up Community Health and Development Programs. And today, they've been sharing with me some of the insights from this book. This book started as scribbled field notes that I wrote 25, 30 years ago about how we started to listen to the community and do stuff. And then loads of different people came in and shared their ideas. So this was very much sort of ideas from the community. That's the voice of Dr. Ted Lancaster, who you may have heard before on this show. He's the book's editor, and along with two other contributors of the book, who will introduce themselves shortly... I've been learning why communities might be the missing piece of the jigsaw in global health. I've also been learning what's changed in the world and in this book since its first edition all the way back in 1992. I've been hearing why things like love, friendship, trust and faith are foundational to the success of a community health programme. And I've been finding out where's the best place to start if you want to set up any kind of community project. Now, ordinarily at this point, I explain a bit about my guest, but I thought for this episode, as there's three guests, I'd give myself a bit of a break and instead let them introduce themselves. So here are my friends and colleagues, Nathan, Jubin, and first of all, Ted. So my name is Ted Lancaster. I've been a doctor for many years. I started as a general practitioner in London, and then I moved and spent many years working in India, working at community level, came back to the UK, retained my passion for community-based healthcare, but at the same time started to look after travellers and humanitarian aid workers. So I continue to do both of those things at the moment. Hi, my name is Jibin Vergis, and uh, I... I train as a psychologist and I work with uh, families affected by disability at the community level. So I'm primarily involved with community-based rehabilitation. Hi, I'm Nathan Grills. I'm a a doctor and public health physician uh, based in Melbourne, but I've done a lot of work in India over the years with a focus on uh, disability, uh, community health, uh, non-communicable diseases, and probably looking at how do you promote networking and cooperation. It's a big part of my work. have a research role at University of Melbourne as uh, an associate professor there as well. So that's Nathan, Jubin and Ted. Before we get into my conversation with them, I'll just explain a little more about the book. Its full title is Setting Up Community Health and Development Programs in Low and Middle Income Settings. It's published by Oxford University Press in association with Aruka Network. There are 28 chapters written by different authors from around the world. It covers topics ranging from building partnerships to environmental health to setting up clinics to family planning and palliative care to making programs sustainable and lots more. And I should say it features case studies from Aruka Network and our members around the world. 
You can buy a physical copy of the book in the link, which I've shared in the description of this podcast. But you can also, at that link, download a digital copy of the book absolutely free. But let's get into our conversation now. And in the introduction to the book, it says, We see a gaping hole in global health, a giant jigsaw puzzle with the central pieces missing. These missing pieces are the community, the community as an empowered group of individuals able to help plan, manage and increasingly own their healthcare using inherent strengths, skills and abilities, but in ways which also connect and integrate with government programmes. This book is focused on how communities, local health initiatives and trained health workers can help fill this gap and become the missing pieces of the jigsaw. So my first question was to Ted, and I just asked him to explain a little bit more about why communities are the missing piece of this jigsaw. Well, of course, the community has always been, uh, to some extent, important, but it hasn't been given the emphasis it needs. So over the many past years, uh, there's been a there's been a sort of tremendous emphasis on the fact that. Um, Doctors and health planners and humanitarian aid workers are the ones who go in and do healthcare and development for local communities, and the communities sort of tag along and agree and uh, and hope that it's relevant for them. But there's been a bit of a, a sort of change, almost a, a sort of ninety degree or one hundred and eighty degree change, um, which is developing at the moment, whereby people are increasingly seeing that the community is the centre. And the hospital and the health facilities are no longer the centre. There's a wonderful quote, actually, from the World Health Organization, uh, which goes as follows. Primary healthcare, or if you like, community-based healthcare, puts families and communities at the hub of the health system. Primary healthcare makes space for solutions created, owned and sustained by them. And I think increasingly with COVID, we're seeing that actually the community, both is suffering the most, but is also coming up with the most effective solutions so that more than ever, uh, the community is the central part around which we need to facilitate and encourage, but we are no longer the owners and the people who do everything for people. Jubin, could I come to you? And um, so Ted's talked in broad terms there, but you, you in particular, you work in community-based rehabilitation of disability. Um, could you talk about the role of community in your work and why, why it's important? Um, maybe I'll share a story if that's okay. Yeah, please. Um, so when I had first joined uh, at this community-based program, and so I trained at a tertiary care center and I graduated thinking I knew the answers. Like all I had to do was get people sit in the clinic and I'd have these, uh, you know, set of instructions to give them and everything will be all right. And um, so during my initial visits, I remember going to this home where uh, we talked to the mother about how to help look after her child with cerebral palsy. And we, as usual, have a home plan. So we gave this home plan to the mother and said, you know, these are the things you must do for your child. We visited with her the next week and nothing had happened. And we visited again, nothing had happened. And we began to get upset with her. I was very upset with her. I was like, how can you not do these things for your own child? I mean, this is important. But uh, 
she was very gracious actually she listened to me go on this huge whatever and then at the end of it she sort of you know waited till i'd come down a bit and then she told me her story about how she has other three children to look after her husband who is an alcoholic she has her in-laws to look after she also has a field and animals to look after so in the midst of all of this for her to care for her child uh with that list of things that i had given to her was impossible but i missed that entire story because i felt that i was the expert who knew what needed to be done i did not consider who she was what her story was where she was coming from and i think that's what happens when we miss community in our conversations about uh health and development because if we do not hear their story listen to the rhythm of their life you know and uh listen to their perspectives and go in thinking we know the answers we can fix it they may be very kind to us and shake their head and say yes yes you've said a, you know a lot of nice things but when we walk away they just go back to whatever is possible it's not because they're being unkind or whatever but it's just that that's all that's possible for them so i think we miss that if we miss out on listening to what's happening in the community i hope that helps yeah thank you um Nathan could could I ask you so the the book is called setting up community health programs in low and middle income settings could I just ask you to explain firstly what what do we mean by a community health program does it does are we are we talking about purely things to do with healthcare or are we talking about broad, broader any any community initiative that's a good question uh Jake and yeah I think it's something that is is developed over the years I think traditionally 30 or 40 years ago uh people separated community health from other uh parts of development but i think we realize now that community health is so uh integrated with um community development you can't separate the two the community development aspects impact health uh and you need a healthy population to be able to promote community development so they're very much intertwined so i think we've developed the name of this book was setting up community health programs um but i think we originally the first editions but we saw that the importance of this area and the learnings that you take from a, a community uh, based approach to the development space they're very similar uh, i so the same sort of concepts have been participatory have been um community orientated of strength based approach so i think we we've learned a lot from the community development space and i think community developments learn a lot from our community health so yeah so it's a hard question to answer but i think we we've seen them as very integrated now and the the new edition of the book incorporates a whole lot of areas that we would call uh, social determinants of health um looking at other areas that are much broader than just what traditionally was health or primary health care so it includes you know things like uh, mental health and uh climate change domestic violence all those areas that are, are related to health um are part of the focus of this book mm. um Ted let's go let's go back a bit cuz you you first published this book in 1992 the first edition of this book and now is it is this is the fifth edition now that we're talking about is that right uh it's the fourth edition but there have been several revisions in between as well so we've been through this an awful lot of times <laughs> okay yeah yeah well i mean you've touched on it a bit about changes in in um global health in that time but could could you talk a bit more about what's what's changed in the world since 1992 and and maybe a bit about how that's reflected in in the book 
Well, to start with, the world's population has doubled. So we've got twice as many people uh, in the world who need um, health and development uh, to improve the improvement of their lives. So that's that's one thing which we tend to forget. Um, there have been some improvements. Maternal and child health, for example, has improved. So there are fewer deaths of young children and mothers and so forth. And various other areas have improved in part. Governments have become more involved. NGOs continue to be involved, but governments have become more involved. Um, what we're seeing, however, are some some worsening situations. For example, there is greater inequality and disparity. And there are 28 years of difference uh, in life expectancy between the poorest countries and the richest. In other words, people live 28 years less in, for example, Japan than they do in Sierra Leone. So we're seeing some improvements, but we're also seeing that the number of people in absolute poverty is remaining horribly similar to the way it was. It's now 1.2 billion, one person in seven. And therefore, all the principles and values that were in the original book now just need to be augmented, explained. They've become more complex. So to some extent, the science needs to be followed more carefully so that people don't bark up the wrong tree. Um, but basically, um, the, the issues that we were grappling with back in 1992 are now there and to some extent almost underlined and, and amplified, um, but the solutions are more complex. And that's the reason we've written this book, to try to tease out the really key principles of how you do stuff so that organisations when they and communities, when they look at the way they want to do things. They want to just check that it's actually in line with what they know will work and also in line with, on the whole, government policy. So to some extent, there needs to be the, the community coming together and deciding what are our main issues and what can we do about it? First question. Second, are we making sure that we continue to work with the government? Second one. And third, are we actually following methods that we know actually work so we need to look at the science mm. um thank you ted and so this book was completed before covid entered our lives um i think i'm right in saying and i'm sure we could well we could do a whole episode purely on on covid i'm sure but um jubin i wonder could i ask you you know, in in your community-based rehabilitation, how has how is COVID impacting how you do this work? Um, we've had to mm, rethink and rework how we uh, interact with the community, uh, but that has also been guided by what the community has been telling us. So, um, in terms of especially with persons with disabilities and uh, COVID, the greatest impact has been in terms of the levels of isolation or the difficulties in access to healthcare or rehabilitation. Or in uh, a lot of our families, it's simply been that there isn't enough money for any of it. Like a lot of them have lost their jobs. Daily wage laborers do not have enough money to be able to support their families. And therefore, our children with disabilities uh, suffer because of it. So um, what it has taken for us is to listen to what's um, 
what the need is in the homes in the families in the community and then learn to respond to that so for example we may be trained uh, therapists but at this point in time our focus is not uh, only about ensuring therapy reaches but our focus has been okay can we help make sure that our kids have access to medicines or that there is enough food in the house because often uh, if there's a child with disability um, and there's a, a typically developing child and you have to distribute food between the two and there's only limited resources the child with disability misses out or loses out so it's been providing those kind of things for families whereas it wouldn't have been what we would have done otherwise but looking at uh, relief uh, specifically for our families looking at uh, providing so a lot of our children are on um, seizure medication but they've been unable to get to hospitals for medicines so ensuring that those medicines reach their homes and um, a lot more has been in terms of just keeping in touch with families looking at their mental well-being and how are they coping at home and yeah so those are sort of sorts of things that we've begun to do or continuing to do as covid continues i guess um it's interesting jubin that uh, well both the answers you've given so far you've you've touched on um listening to community members and learning from them um and i'm really interested uh, that there's a there's effectively a chapter in the book that's about listening um ted i know you and i we've spoken about listening a lot in the past but um so nathan i'd l- i'd love to ask you about the 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 presence of of um these sort of soft skills of listening and relationship building in in creating a successful community health program i wonder if you could just talk a bit about yeah what why that's why that's given prominence in the in the book uh, yeah thanks jake it's a i mean it's, we call it soft skills like it's almost easy but uh, i think probably they're the hardest to do we could call them hard skills because they're very mm. difficult to develop and often they are i think ignored uh, in a community health and development program uh, i think in the current pandemic we've we've taken an approach with our programs to be very much listening and doing a lot of community surveys and especially amongst the marginalized uh, those who have disabilities and um those who are widows we've done a number of surveys to work out what their real problems are because otherwise you end up making you know policies or developing programs from afar potentially and not really engaging with where people are at and their needs but but secondly you miss out on their um their expertise and their experience uh, you know in the villages in a place like india where a uh, majority of people live at that village level if you don't understand what's happening at the village you don't actually listen to what uh their knowledge uh brings to the table and and terms of solutions and, and working closely with them it, it's at our own peril really and uh, that grassroots experience and knowledge is so important and leads to bad decisions and and bad policies i think if we don't listen uh so i think i think it's 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 basic to any community health and development program unless it becomes otherwise a almost you no know, colonial exercise where you go in and impose your your ideas it, that listening and learning from the experts who are the people we work with in the communities is just is just key and i think but it's beyond just that it's beyond just listening i mean the soft skills uh, and relationship building is just it's a key for community health um and to be respectful of people you're working with but it's also key to other partnerships that you might develop together uh to be able to you know work on community health or address a, address a problem like covid-19 uh you need to work with 
with uh, service providers, uh, other NGOs, the government, Pradhans, local village leaders. You need to better work with all of those players uh, to be able to make the program effective and sustainable um, and probably even affordable because you rely very heavily on different government services in a community health space that's done through an NGO. So I think, yeah, I think what we've we've learned over the last 12, 13 years working in India and it's a big part of a Ruka network, obviously, is the importance of that, that networking and relationships. I don't think it's networking just for the sake of a program. It's much more in-depth and meaningful than that. It, it's not manipulation, trying to make a friend so you can get a favour. It's actually loving people and loving one another, as, as the Bible teaches us to do. And um, our programs are value-based, and I think I draw a lot of inspiration from that, that, that biblical principle of loving one another, of serving one another, um, I think also in the Bible is a great verse where it talks about you know, give and it will be given unto you. I think the idea of us giving to each other, loving and serving each other, we are ultimately blessed and we're able to do far more and be far more effective when we, we are serving and loving those that um, we're working alongside, both in the community and also other partners that we might be working with. So, yeah, I, I think love and serving is a soft skill um, and it, it can't just be as a manipulation to try and get your way. It has to be a genuine engagement with and love for the community that we're working with and for our partners. Yeah. So I think that, that relationship building is a key part of any networking. That networking has been key for our disability work and our community health work in the area that we work in India. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I think it's... Um... So Nathan, you're you're an academic and you work in a university and you're accustomed to working with, I imagine, with things that are evidence-based um, and peer-reviewed and all this this kind of stuff. Um, and yet you've just talked about love. Um, um do you do you find it challenging to to um or do you see them as two separate things? And is it a challenge to uh, you know, like do you talk about love in the classroom and and is love is I, I'm, I must admit I've not read the whole book. It's a big book, but I have leafed through it, and I, um, I don't know if I've seen the word love, but I've seen you know, I guess manifestations of of love in the book. It, is that a, is that a challenge talking about love in your in your field? Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about in terms of the book. We haven't mentioned love much, but it probably is a summary concept for a lot of the different softer skills in the book. It's just love. Um, we I, I teach in the in the leadership course that we have at University of Melbourne and I teach leadership also at a number of other um, uh, degree degree programs and it is something in those programs that comes up it maybe is not called love as such but that respect for others that caring for them that serving one another um, putting others before yourself you know the humility that we need to have when working in those areas yeah in some ways the summary of all those is is love and love your neighbours as you love yourself. It's simple as that sort of, you know, biblical concept in, in many ways. That's the starting point and probably the most important. Um, so we have those discussions in our groups, actually, in leadership training, you know, about those softer skills and, and why should you care for somebody else and how you generally engage with someone and show them that actually you, you care about who they are and you want to serve that, that person or that family or that community. Um, yeah. So I think it... <laughs> It is, it's an, I think as a leader and when we teach leadership skills, I think loving is a really important part of your work. It might be called different things. It might be called um, looking after your staff, caring for your staff, you know, seeking the best for them. It might be called 
seeking the best of your community and, and you know, caring for them or showing compassion. They're all just different ways of saying love. Mm. Can you teach people how to love, do you think? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, it's, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, not a, it's, a, matter, it's a heart matter. Mm. Uh, I think we can learn and we can, yeah, I think we can model loving and we can put things in place that, that show uh, that care and compassion. Um, but I think actually it comes from the heart. It's a deeper heart issue to really express that, that care at a deep level for the people you're working with and uh, both in the community level but also your fellow staff members and other people in your development space or in your, you know, in your, your staff, um, staff room. But yeah, you can, you can do uh, – it's a good discipline to have is how we love and care for each other. But, yeah, to really genuinely love someone in, um, in a fraternal way is, is – yeah, it's a matter of the heart. Hmm. Jubin, um, it's it's funny. So all this talk of love, th- there was a quote. So um, Ian Campbell, who wrote the chapter on um, listening, I don't know the name of the chapter, but I remember hearing him speak once, and he talked about well, the the thing he, that stuck with me, and I didn't get to ask him to elaborate upon. But the thing he said was that trust is at the root of good health, um, and I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but it's like I say, it stuck with me and. Jubin, these these soft skills or hard skills, as we might call them, lo- love and trust and and listening and things like that, is, is that do you do you think of your work in in those kind of terms? Oh, definitely. Um, the way we talk about our work is so community based rehabilitation is a strategy. It doesn't define all that we do. It's just a way of going about in the community. But the foundation of it all is relationships. It has to begin there. And uh, so in terms of getting to know people or having, there's one thing about getting to know people, but also being in the space where you are known by them as well. That's equally important. And trust comes only from that, from being in that common space where you know each other, you get to know each other and have those conversations. And so there is a level of transparency and vulnerability that's required of us as well when we are in the community, you know. And so all of that uh, sometimes can't be taught in the university, I think. And it often comes from actually being in the community and learning from them. So like some of the children we work with, they will turn around and tell us things to our face like, why are you doing this? And then we have to stop and think and say, yeah, why am I doing this? Hmm. You know, but that willingness to uh, be vulnerable in that situation, in that space is important. And um, yeah, so that's where the trust and love and, uh, you know, all of these things that are key to building relationships come in. And without it, I don't think, uh, I mean, all that we do is um, we are learning to walk alongside each other. And that's what community health and development to me is. Like we are walking alongside each other, learning from one another. So we may have different strategies, but the heart of it all is this. So, yep. So it is key. Ted, um, where, where, where do people start if they, if they, if, if, they're looking to set up some kind of community health program. Where, where's what's the best starting point, other than uh, buying or downloading your book? Well, of course, a, a great number of uh, communities worldwide are already involved in 
their own community health programs, working with the government, uh, coming together. Um, but it's very patchy. And of course, there are some places where this is working quite well, but in some of the poorest and most vulnerable communities, especially in some urban slum communities, this is, this is hardly happening. So again, I think we need to start with listening to what a community wants and what their assets are. But I think at the same time, there needs to be the sort of interface uh, with what is known to work most effectively so people don't actually waste their time barking up the wrong tree, if you like. Um, so I think this book is, um, to start with, emphasizes the importance of, of, of listening, the soft skills, all that we've just been talking about. But it also then goes on to say, okay, so you've got a real problem here in your community of obesity and diabetes and so forth and so on. So so what can you do about it? And this, this book will actually give the latest sort of how-to and guidance on that from the best sources so that they then know how to put that into practice. And I think this is going to be the, the real value of this book, actually, is, is going to be, it's almost like a sort of person drawing alongside people who've got um, lots of ideas about what they need to do, uh, lots of passion, but they're not quite sure how to do it. So uh, they have a friend, they have a book, they have an accompaniment here in the book, uh, which sort of engages and listens to what they're saying first, but it also comes in and gives them guidance about how they can specifically deal with the malaria and the, and the disaster reduction and, and all the people dying from uh, at the moment from COVID. Um, one additional point, I think, is that COVID has made... Uh, the community, to some extent, it's, it's made the community more vulnerable, but it's also given communities more of a voice because they are so often the people who come up with the solutions as we've been talking about. Um, but to some extent, we need to understand that COVID has put development and global health backwards by about five years. There's a quote which comes from the editor of The Lancet. This pandemic is dismantling the foundations for protecting and advancing global health. So um, to some extent, if we were looking a year ago, this book was very useful. It's always been useful and actually it's been very well uh, used by a number of different people. But now that things are going backwards and people are more puzzled about what's going on, uh, I feel that the, the information in this book is going to be even more valuable because programs may have started but they'll now be going backwards, are beginning confused. And so this book is going to help. Just one very quick example. Um, there's a prediction that one person in two who is suffering from cancer or um, hypertension or diabetes, we call those non-communicable diseases. One person in two is having their treatment for these conditions worldwide seriously disrupted because of COVID. That's half. Um, so there is an incredible catch-up. And there's a whole chapter which Nathan has written on non-communicable diseases. That's going to be a really crucial chapter for people to look at and say, my goodness me, how can we deal with this problem? Remembering that 70% of people in the world will be dying from non-communicable diseases. That is the biggest area that we need to tackle. Just some ideas. Thank you. Mm. And Ted, um, do you want to talk just a little bit finally about who, who this book is for? Because you don't need a, you know, a degree or a master's in global health to, to to use this book it's it's written for um really anyone isn't it it's very it's it's accessible 
kind of plain English? So this this book started as scribbled field notes that I wrote when back in the, in. 25, 30 years ago, about how we started to listen to the community and do stuff. And then loads of different people came in and shared their ideas. So this was very much sort of ideas from the community. And we called it, and we still really do call it, a manual, a practical manual for how communities can do stuff. But when we talked to Oxford University and said, look, we want this to be a book for two different groups of people. First, yes, a manual for people who are working at the grassroots and the, and the program managers and the community health workers and so forth and so on. People are doing it at the front line. But we also want this book to inform students, policymakers, uh, and, and those at a sort of higher level who are trying to put together the way programs should be done. So it's got two specific audiences. And I think... Uh, and I think Oxford University Press thinks that we probably managed to do that so that it works both for the grassroots people, but also actually for the academics, because we've got lots of references, lots of good science, but it's only the science that is going to be really useful at the community level. Forget the rest of it. Um, so I think the, the mixture of useful science and how you do stuff practically is what this book is really trying to bring together and do. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't really have any more questions. Is there anything any of you would like to to add? Anything you think I've I've missed out? I think I'd just like to add. Um, you're asking about how it's useful, and I, I think for for me, from a coming from a development background, having done a master in public health and global health sciences, you get a lot of you come up with a lot of people who are really keen to help, and, and Ted touched on that who who are really motivated, intelligent, and end up starting NGOs or starting programs and um, it can be done and that can be done in a really positive way or a really unhelpful way. I think I was that person perhaps in 2006, five, six and as a student and we started a program and that, that was a learning experience. But I think this, this book speaks to those people who are thinking, okay, I want to really get involved. It, it Firstly, by reading the initial chapters, it grounds them in, in that community Based approach and it takes away some of the arrogance we might have as an outsider and then the rest of the chapters as Ted suggested are, are the, the hard skills and, and technical side that are really helpful when you're looking at how how to you know, design or how to create a community health program or start a, an organization or support an organization or what areas to look at when you want to try and raise funds they're all important functions that you can play and I, I, I would hate that this book would discourage people from using that passion uh, that you know that those skills that people have when you're going through university and you, you have opportunities to engage and you want to start an organisation or raise funds or they're really great. That's really great passion and desire. But this book really helps, I think, focus that in a really positive way and lead to better outcomes. Mm. Thanks, Nathan. Um, Jibin, do you have any any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um. I was just thinking in a lot of ways, at least uh, the CBI chapter, um, a lot of the stuff that we wrote are lessons we have learned from our mistakes, things we wish we had known and we learned them the hard way. Uh, so it comes from a place of, uh, yeah, of just mistakes we have made and we don't, other, don't want other people to walk that same path and learn those hard lessons the hard way. So, uh, yeah, so 
And I think, uh, so it's not that we've got all the answers, but we know what not to do. So maybe, yeah, that's what in some ways um, the chapter talks about, actually. Yeah, that's it. Brilliant. Um, I, I lectured to uh, to nurses at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I, I sort of look at some of the statistics. And the one that scares me and astonishes me the most is that the world according to the World Health Organization, is short of, can you believe it, 19 million trained doctors, nurses, and midwives. The world is short of 19 million. Therefore, we have to do what we call task shifting, move stuff away from doctors and nurses and health professionals to community members, and above all, to community health workers who then become the sort of key people at community level who can prevent, listen, do, and help a lot of the stuff that doctors and nurses and other allied health professionals have been doing. So this book's got a big emphasis on the community health worker and what communities can do in the absence of the fact that there just will never be enough doctors and nurses, especially as the population is increasing so fast. So I think that's a really key key central part of the book, that chapter on the community health worker, especially at the time of COVID when they're becoming even more important. That was Dr. Ted Lancaster, as well as Jubin Vergas and Nathan Grills, all talking about the book, Setting Up Community Health and Development Programs. That's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will say what I normally say here, which is this. You can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Eureka Network. Eureka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Eureka Network. You can learn more about us on our website. Just visit arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email jake at arukanetwork.org. But that's it from me. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>